Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all Bible-loving creatures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Candlethal. The amazing Dr. Rachel Wren is off this week. The first reading for February 6, 2022 is Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, and uh, possibly a little bit more. We'll say more about that. Um, And this week, we have a special guest scholar with us to help us think through this text. That's right. We're grateful to have in our Zoom studio, Dr. Ethan Schwartz, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Villanova University. His research focuses on the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Bible, so today's passage is right in his wheelhouse. Ethan loves to bring biblical studies into productive conversation with contemporary religious life in synagogues, institutes, and churches. If you're interested in more of his work, uh, we'd recommend that you find him over at the Political Theology Network on the blog called Politics of Scripture. You can find that at politicaltheology.com, and we'll put a link to that on our website. Ethan's career has reached a new high today in being the first guest to appear twice on First Reading. (laughs) So, Dr. Ethan Schwartz, welcome back to First Reading. Thank you. It's really, uh, really great to be back, uh, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's really good to have you with us. And since your former appearance was before my time at first reading, it's really great to meet you. So I know you've been teaching for a while now as a Jewish scholar at a Catholic university. Um, Would you mind just saying a word about how you experienced that interfaith engagement or, you know, how that's important to you? I'm sure a few of our listeners might wonder why you'd be interested in being a guest on a podcast that follows a Christian lectionary. Yeah, well, I, I'm a Jewish scholar who teaches at a Catholic university commenting on a Protestant lectionary in this case. So we've got basic, a lot of bases <laughs> yeah, covered right. here. Uh, and what's interesting about my position at Villanova is that it's actually a biblical studies job. I was hired for a, a, a job to, he, to teach Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament. So that is my primary focus there. But because I happen to be um, a Jew in a Catholic environment, I naturally take on some of those um, Jewish Catholic dialogue roles, which I, I'm is something I'm very passionate about. So it's it's actually a, it's a perk of this position, as far as I'm concerned, even though it's not the main focus. So I try to bring that aspect kind of in as an organic component of the biblical studies part. Um, so using biblical studies as kind of a, an opening to thinking about. Uh, Jewish Christian dialogue as a whole, but also, you know, Jewish Catholic dialogue in in particular. Absolutely. Uh, And Mm -hmm. uh, one more sort of like introductory question here before we dive into our passage for the week. Could you say just a little bit about what draws you to the prophetic literature uh, in particular in the Bible? Because I have to say, for me personally, I find that the prophetic literature is the part of the canon that's the most difficult for me to access and to wrap my mind around. What, What is it that grabs you about it? I've always been fascinated by the way, and we'll probably get a chance to talk about this today, but I've always been fascinated by the way that the, um, the, the language of prophecy is used in connection with social critique in contemporary, um, contemporary uh, religious contexts. And, uh, and that's, that has ended up you know, being what I, what I focus on. I'm interested in the way that social critique is configured by this literature as being a role that prophets play. Um, how it uh, aligns with what we expect from modern context, how it um, does not align in some cases, and uh, the ways that these figures 
are presented as being in a complex and fraught relationship with authority in a way that feels um, kind of perpetually relevant and very, yeah. uh, very current. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that would be a little bit of my, of my, my pitch about how I came to really, um, appreciate all right, this, all right. You, you've got me sold. Part. I think I could be convinced to appreciate the profits. All right. <laughs> and I was just thinking you've whetted our appetite to get right into this text, right? So Ethan, would you mind doing the reading for us from Isaiah six? Yeah, sure. I'm going to read it here from the, uh, the new Je- Jewish publication society translation. Um, and, uh, I will go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Um, including the optional section for the the lectionary, verses 9 to 13. Thank you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I beheld my Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the skirts of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs stood in attendance on him. Each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his legs, and with two he would fly. And one would call to the other, Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts, his presence fills all the earth. The doorposts would shake at the sound of the one who called, and the house kept filling with smoke. I cried, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my own eyes have beheld the King Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew over to me with a live coal, which he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched it to my lips and declared, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt shall depart and your sin be purged away. Then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So that's where the first part of the lection ends. And the rest of the chapter reads as follows. And he said, Go, say to that people, Hear indeed, but do not understand. See indeed, but do not grasp. Dull that people's mind, stop its ears and seal its eyes, lest seeing with its eyes and hearing with its ears it also grasp with its mind and repent and save itself. I asked, How long, my lord? And he replied, till towns lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the ground lies waste and desolate. For the Lord will banish the population, and deserted sites are many in the midst of the land. But while a tenth part yet remains in it, it shall repent. It shall be ravaged like the terebinth and the oak, of which stumps are left even when they are felled. Its stump shall be a holy seed." Wow, what a what a provocative text. <laughs> and I was struck as you were reading it, just how visual it is. There's so much amazing imagery in here. But I think um, just to dive into it, maybe we can jump back to the beginning. And you've, we've got that note of historical context. And I, I wonder what we might say about that. Verse 1 places us in the year of the death of King Uzziah. What's the significance of that marker? What, what do we know about how this vision, experience, or whatever it is, is is set here. The opening of the book of Isaiah, the very first verse, tells us that Isaiah's prophetic career uh, overlapped with four kings of Judah, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The, the notice that this vision corresponds with the death of a king might lead you to expect that this is uh, a, a change in, in regime. 
that this is a moment of royal transition. Actually, it turns out that the dynasty got a little bit messy here because Uzziah was sick for much of the end of his life. And basically his son Jotham was ruling in sort of a regency type arrangement. That's right, that's right. Um, so what's actually significant about this moment is the broader geopolitical um, context at the time, uh, less about the, the sort of royal, the royal chain. Mm -hmm. This is happening shortly before uh, an event that Bible scholars refer to as the Syro-Ephraimite crisis or the Syro-Ephraimite war, which happened in the mid 730s BCE. And basically the situation here, the Neo-Assyrian empire, which is sort of the first real world empire is encroaching on this, on this region. You've got the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah with all the tensions there the tensions that they have with the Neo-Assyrian, the larger Neo-Assyrian force, which is threatening them. And then also these other local kingdoms, right? Non-Israelite mm -hmm, kingdoms. Right. So basically this region is like a total powder keg. <laughs> the Middle East being a powder keg. <laughs> yeah. Who Surprise. could imagine, right? And what happens in the mid 730s is that basically the Northern Kingdom of Israel. So just as a reminder for the, at least the next couple of minutes when we're talking about this context, when I say Israel, I don't mean the people as a whole. I mean, specifically the Northern political mm -hmm, entity, right. right? In contrast to Judah. So just as, you know, just to be totally explicit there. So the Northern Kingdom of Israel and a local non-Israelite kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Syria, not Assyria, right? Just Syria, mm -hmm. um, also known as Aram, right? Which is sort of right next door they basically decide they're going to team up to resist the Neo-Assyrian encroachment, the imperial encroachment. And Judah is not on board with that plan. Mm -hmm. So what this leads to, there's a war between Judah and this alliance between Israel and Syria slash Aram. Mm -hmm. All of this, in one way or another, leads to the Neo-Assyrian destruction of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, which will happen uh, a little over a decade later, the exile of the 10 Northern tribes into Neo-Assyria, from which they will never return, and the complete subjugation of the Southern Kingdom of Judah as a vassal state to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Mm -hmm. So this really represents the entrance of empire squarely onto the, the stage of biblical history which is going to be the case for the, the rest of time, right? right From right. Uh, Neo-Assyria to Neo, the Neo-Babylonian Empire to Persia to, the, to, to Alexander, all the way up to Rome. I mean, obviously, we're, we're post-biblical for the Hebrew Bible, post-Hebrew Bible at this point, all the way up to Rome and the exile, the second exile of the Jews under the Roman Empire. It's just this cycle of imperial domination. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it really, like, this is a key moment in the initiation of that. Yeah, so how does all of that big political context weigh upon this moment of Uzziah's death. It, it, it's using this as a historical marker. The, the, the significance of this death is that it's shortly before the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. That's really the mm -hmm. interest. So, so hearers or readers of this passage in, in context would know that that's what's coming up, is this, this big crisis. That's the, the sort of context for this experience that Isaiah reports. Yeah, and that's narrated pretty explicitly. Isaiah chapters 6 to 9 
are explicitly situated against that backdrop, right? right it's not, right. it's not by implication. It's not, it's not by, there's no, like, it's not, it's not a wink. It's like, it's there. It's that, it says it quite clearly. Well, so you've painted this like tapestry, this web that's going on in the background here for this opening speech or opening kind of narration or setting that we're for Isaiah 6. Would you be able to draw any kind of parallel to a modern or close to modern uh, historical example of what's going on here in this text? I, I can't think of a specific example, but something from, you know, March 2020 before, like, you know, when COVID was... We knew it was there, uh-huh. but like hadn't really <laughs> arrived yet. Right. This vision is being situated kind of like with the knowledge of this coming event that is just going to like totally reshuffle everyone's kind of reality. That's that that's mm-hmm. the sense. So you you could really map it onto all kinds of major historical events in different parts of the yeah. world. In in the last moments of the before times. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really helpful too for anybody that's trying to figure out, you know, how are you going to approach this text to think about we've seen things like this before. So the way that Isaiah's framing this passage that is really helpful to me too to think about. Well, maybe we can unpack some of the imagery that we find in these first few verses here. Gosh, we've got so much there. It's all packed in there. You've got this throne on which the Lord is seated, and there's these seraphs with way too many wings and using them in in various strange ways. What's what's Isaiah seeing here, and and what do we make of it? Yeah, well, let's start big picture with genre, because that's that's really important here before we get into this image, because like genre is really the, the name of the game with starting to understand this passage, in my opinion. Um, so this is a this is a call vision. This is a prophetic commissioning. Uh, that might seem obvious, but but it's actually really crucial that we get that framework in place mm-hmm. because this vision coheres with other prophetic commissioning narratives that are preserved in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Moses at the burning bush in Exodus three to four, uh, Jeremiah's opening uh, vision um, at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel's opening vision in the first three chapters of the book of Ezekiel, Gideon in the book of Judges. There are many examples of this genre. So this is a recognizable form that employs a lot of tropes. So, so what are some of the big picture elements that we should look for if we're reading this in that in that pattern? So we're seeing, uh, you know, a, a kind of fascinating yet terrifying visual appearance of the deity accompanied by some form of other divine beings we'll get to the we'll get to the seraphs that we see here some sort of concern in response to this on the part of the prophet and then crucially often that concern leading to an attempted rejection of the commissioning which of course we do not find here in Isaiah and we'll get there because the way in which this text actually subverts that trope in the genre is crucial I think to understanding the message of this. So that that's a good example of how like if you didn't have this broader understanding that like you know Moses at the burning bush really tries to weasel his way out of mm-hmm. out of this mission right. right Jeremiah right like like uh you know like th- this if you didn't have that broader understanding it wouldn't be so striking that Isaiah eagerly volunteers. Right. You're sort of waiting mm-hmm. for him to say, send somebody else. And then you get mm-hmm. this twist. Send me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And and it's only a twist if you have the broader, the broader genre in your head. So that's why that question Excellent. of that question yeah. of the, of, of the form is real is really important. Mm-hmm. So, so with that kind of framework in place, then yeah, definitely uh, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit 
uh, more about some of the specific imagery because uh, because as as Tim noted, this is a uh, a very visually striking and saturated text, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's it's all about the visual. Let's start with the fact that Isaiah is reporting this. He he is narrating this. It's a past event, right? He's saying, in the year that this happened, I saw this thing, uh -huh. right? right? And you can almost ima imagine him like gathering people around and being like, check this out, yeah. right? Like I saw this crazy thing. And what's interesting is that, is that the whole thing that is framed is we are not seeing this, right? We're hearing Isaiah's report. Contrast that with Moses, right? In the story of Moses and the burning bush, then of course the narrator, the, the, the anonymous narrator of Exodus mm -hmm. is telling us this event. But, We're there with Moses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. We're there with mm -hmm. him. Moses isn't isn't narrating it. So what's interesting is that we are kind of one degree removed from this theophany, this appearance of the deity, in a way that's not the case with a third person narrated event like Moses and the burning mm -hmm. bush. And yet the imagery here is so saturated and specific that it it really makes you forget yeah. that. You really you really feel like you're standing there with Isaiah and seeing exactly what he's seeing. Um, another, another interesting contrast here is looking at Ezekiel chapters one to three, which is where we get the, this incredibly um, detailed de uh, description of the cherubs and um, the divine chariot, mm -hmm. which is also incredibly visual, but almost everything Ezekiel says there is qualified by saying, it sort of looked <laughs> like X, Y, Z, or it, it kind of had the appearance of, so is Ezekiel seeing whatever he's seeing very clearly, uh -huh. but he has no idea how to how to yeah, describe it. It's more it. impressionistic. It's very, yeah, exactly. I think that's a great word to to describe it. Um, so different here in Isaiah. Isaiah is able to really clearly describe every aspect of what he's seeing. Yeah. So one one thing I wonder about this early description here is just the scale of it, because I'm trying to you know picture with with Isaiah what he's seeing there, and the the Lord is seated on a throne that's like way way up. Summer high, but he's got this robe that fills up the whole space of the temple. So I would to imagine sort of like uh, a larger than life sort of deity here. Is that kind of what he's seeing? You think? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's important. We need to talk about the about the the spatial location here, right? It it says there's a throne and there's a temple. This seems to be some sort of heavenly temple, mm -hmm. not this specific building in Jerusalem. It's some sort of heavenly palace. So we are talking about something that is otherworldly and on an absolutely massive scale. It's like it's like in um, the Force Awakens where when you first see uh, Snoke, <laughs> right, 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 he's huge and he's sitting and he lo and it, it looks ridiculous. He's like this huge thing and like what's going on? Like that that's kind of what's going on here. Like like Isaiah standing before this supersized person. I think that might the be the headline. Right? Ethan Schwartz compares the Lord to Snoke. Look, I, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, when I first saw that scene. This is the first thing I thought. Oh, I was wow. like, I was like, his the skirts of his robe filling filling the palace. Like this, this is what that I looks like, like right think. there. Um, I, I liked very little about that movie, uh, frankly, but but I, I I enjoyed I enjoyed that connection in my head. Um, so anyway, what else is in this otherworldly sort of scene here? Then we should talk about the seraphs, right? Yeah, for sure. So the seraphs are clearly some sort of divine being, but. It's very hard to say exactly what they are. So a classic scholarly uh, interpretation of them is that they are some sort of flying snake, some sort of serpent. 
you know, it's possible that legs is a euphemism for genitals and that, that and that that is actually why they're being covered. You know, they're very, they're very modest. Um, <laughs> but uh, because like there, you could, you could picture like, oh, like we understand why they want to cover their faces. Divine beings often want to conceal their faces. Uh, we see this all over the Bible. Um, it's less clear why they would want to cover their legs. But if, if their legs are actually their genitals, then like the face, mm -hmm. that's like another, another sensitive body mm -hmm. part, right? So, um, and then they've got these two wings left to fly, right? Um, but if they are indeed real legs, then that, then basically this doesn't really sound like any snake I've ever seen. I don't know about <laughs> you. So, um, I hope so, not. <laughs> so, so I basically, I don't really know what these things were meant to look like um, in the form in which we know it. And you might say, oh, well, if we know that there is this analogy with um, Egyptian sources, uh, why would they use the word seraph if they didn't mean that? Well, I would point out that um, in Renaissance art, we call the little flying babies cherubs, even though that's not, not what cherubs look like even remotely <laughs> right, in right. the Bible, right? Just because, just because they're using the word doesn't mean that they were actually imagining the same mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a good recommendation, just sort of general preaching point for folks out there. Uh, you know, we, we learn in, in seminary about how to do these fancy word studies and all of that, but it's a real temptation to sort of take those and run with it as if that's the heart of what's going on in a passage. And often, as seems like the case here, you more just sort of have to take the text as it, as it comes and, and not make too big a deal out of some sort of tangential etymological possibility there. Yeah, definitely. I would say that uh, if you are tempted to craft a sermon that is entirely dependent on like a specific visual account of what these things look like, <laughs> I, I'm, I, that's uh, it's, it's, it's hanging a lot on, on things that are on things that are quite speculative. That, that's what I would say. What's more important is that we have some sort of fantastic divine being here. That's not up for debate. And that I think is like really what this text wants us to see, that what Isaiah is seeing is nuts, whatever yeah. it is. But also, what are they saying, right? So let's start moving toward uh, verse three, if we could. Like, holy, holy, holy. Could you fill that out for our listeners? Like, what are they trying to say to one another in this call and response? So it's important to note they're being situated as basically being uh, attendants, right? They are standing at attendants. They are this kind of uh, this kind of entourage for the king, the divine king, and they seem to be uttering this in praise of the divine king. Um, and appropriately enough, you know, the so-called trisegeon, this triplicate use of, of the word holy, kadosh, ends up becoming very liturgically important for both uh, Jews and Christians. And so a big question there is like, what's going on with the threefold use? So there's a few ways. It could be a superlative saying holy, holy, holy means the most holy thing we can conceive mm -hmm. of, right? Holier than the holiest holy mm -hmm. thing, right? <laughs> Basically. So that's one option. It might be the case that uh, rather than being a superlative, uh, three is seen as some sort of number of completeness, right? Three is like a, is a, is a special, it's one of those special numbers, like seven, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they like threes. So it might be some sort of statement of perfection. Completely holy. Yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're a Christian reader of this, it's, it's pretty obvious like where, where you would take this. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, an allusion uh, to the Trinity. Um, and I want to mention one reading, which a, a teacher of mine, uh, Professor Simeon Chevelle at the University of Chicago, uh, shared with me, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And I, I've really bought it, which is that it's not actually three discrete, specific pronouncements of the word holy, that this is the author's attempt to capture the phenomenon of an echo. 
that actually what's happening is they are just unendingly saying holy and the word holy, much like the smoke and the skirts of the robe, is filling the temple. So it's like, wow. holy, 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 holy. Yeah. <laughs> so that this is like, and if you think about how would you try to simulate echo in a written text, this is a pretty, this is <laughs> the really direction like you, would, you would That's go really in. That's really picturesque. Yeah. 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 So I, I have really, I don't think that there's any rock solid answer here. For obvious reasons, I am disinclined, though, to think that it is the Trinity. That one I will, that one I will, I will rule out. <laughs> but the, the echo, the echo language, I think, fits so nicely with the lushness, the kind of sensory overload feel of this passage. I, I really think that's a, uh, and the language of filling, right? Because echo, you can think of as like a sound filling mm. something. So if you could comment on the difference between the JPS translation and the NRSV for the whole earth is full of his glory in the NRSV. Um, or his presence fills all the earth. In terms of the phrase about uh, the uh, the presence slash glory filling the whole world, so the Hebrew word here is, is kavod, right? Which is a really important and really difficult mm-hmm. word to translate that describes some aspect of God's physical existence, right? Uh, contrary to where Judaism and Christianity would both end up eventually, the Bible, most biblical texts seem to think that God had a physical body, um, which is often described with this Hebrew word kavod, which comes from the root kaved, meaning weight or heaviness. It's often translated as glory, but but the problem with that word in English is that it's a little it, it's a little too abstract. Mm-hmm. The so-called glory, the kavod, um, could refer to God's physical body, which uh, in some texts it does, or it could refer to this kind of radiant light with which God's body was illuminated. So those two readings, it's not actually so much an either or, they're connected, Mm -hmm. the body and the light. So I'm less interested in the translation of presence versus glory, which I just think is two different common ways Mm -hmm. of translating kavod. What I think is more interesting is that, and and I'm going to try to explain this without getting too much into the into the Hebrew grammar here, because I know that not all listeners necessarily um, know Hebrew, but this phrase could plausibly be translated, the fullness of the earth is his glory or is his presence, mm-hmm. right? So not a verbal sentence in which the kavod is filling up the mm-hmm. earth, but a nominal sentence of equation saying the kavod is the fullness of the earth. And we know from biblical texts, like in the, in the Psalms, for instance, that the, the phrase, the fullness of the earth, is a way of like talking about um, kind of all the living things, like the, the abundance, the living biological abundance of the earth. So there are some readers who see this as actually a statement of the world itself actually being the quote unquote glory of God, mm-hmm. right? That is a grammatically um, feasible reading. And it's interesting to think about perhaps the kind of ecological or environmental uh, potential as a, you know, of that equation as a preaching strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ask me, what do I think it means? I don't think it means that. (laughs) I think that, I think that, I think it's it's grammatically possible. I want to be clear about that. It it, it is, it is a, just strictly speaking on the way the words fit together, it's possible. I don't think that's what it means. I think in context, it means, I think it's the use of a nominal sentence to express a verbal idea, which Hebrew does all the time. And I think it means God's glory fills the whole earth. It fits with what we what is, is said a minute ago about the train of the robe 
filling the whole palace. There is this theme of filling. The, the echo might bring that out in, a, in an auditory mm-hmm. way. It seems like it's saying that however we translate it, the presence, the body, the uh, glory of God is ubiquitous. And, and in a way, maybe this is being said here because there's no escape from the Lord. <laughs> there's nowhere you can go where God isn't there. And, and, and fear is a, another common trope in these prophetic commissioning narratives. Exactly, right? exactly. The, the, and that's, that's how Isaiah responds when we, when we pick up there in verse 5. Woe is me, I'm lost. Oily. Does that seem to fit pretty well with the, the pattern of these call narratives to, to have sort of an initial response of fear like this? Absolutely. Um, although, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to get this twist in a minute where uh, something happens and what we'll talk about what that is. And then suddenly Isaiah is eagerly volunteering for this mission, which is, which is as I mentioned before, is extremely unusual within this genre. So it's worth unpacking exactly what's going on here. So his response to this, um, visual appearance of of the holy, holy, holy deity um, seems to be one of feeling like he is uh, he is being put in danger because he is inadequate in light of the holiness of this god versus his own uncleanness, and particularly lips, right? Svatayim. What what's the deal with the lips? Right. So this is where things get interesting because what indeed is the deal with the lips? Mm-hmm. So it's not. I think. Woe is me. I am lost as if he's fearful for his life, but rather, woe is me for I must be silent. Something like that. That's how I would translate it. Like, oh man, I want to tell people (laughs) about this, but I can't, right? right? That's what I think is going on here. Then, then the rest of the narrative makes a ton of sense because then the seraph comes and purifies his lips by means of a coal from the altar. And there you have the fire imagery. Mm -hmm. And once his lips are purified, then Isaiah's like, okay, let's do this. I'm ready. (laughs) Right. I like it. So then, then there's this sort of, there's a punchline, there's a twist here. And and how does that change things? Yeah. I mean, it totally changes things. Cause if, if you end the lectionary with here I am, send me, Right. That's like a really nice way of like, you know, like perfect, like, like, uh, yeah, like accepting, accepting God's mission for you. Like, and then, but what does that mission actually entail? Isaiah ends up being commanded to essentially be an anti-prophet. If the goal of the prophet is to try to get the people to hear God's message, God tells him, you're going to do whatever you can to prevent prevent this people from hearing my message, right? Um, And we could spend a lot of time um, unpacking the specific language that's used here. Um, uh, This is, uh, there has been really great scholarship from the perspective of disability studies on the language that is used here in terms of um, the the blindness and deafness Hmm. imagery. What I really, you know, for time's sake, just want to focus on is that the, the rationale here that God says is, I want you to prevent the people from actually doing what theoretically you would think I would want them to do because I don't want them to actually fix themselves. I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to turn back. The idea seems to be that God has basically had enough, that he's fed up and he is looking for pretense to destroy the people, hmm. um, which is obviously- That's like, troubling. Troubling. <laughs> yeah, very true. To, to, to put it mildly, um, you can see why people might want to stop the lectionary before right. we before we get there. By the way, um, uh, Isaiah has a similar reaction when he says, "How long, my lord?" You can picture him basically, like you know, basically just jaw on the floor, right? Like, wh- 
what did I just sign up for? <laughs> He's like, okay, okay, but but when do I stop this? And God's answer is until there's nothing left, right? Mm-hmm. I, I see this as basically being Isaiah assuming, oh, I'm going to be commissioned for a prophetic mission of salvation. The tide is going to turn, right? Everything's going to be great. And like that's behind him eagerly signing up. And it actually uh, turns out that it's the complete opposite. For me, in terms of tying this into contemporary um, contemporary context, I think this could be a really fruitful preaching angle, um, although maybe difficult. I see this as a rebuke to those who are eager to be prophets. Hmm. And going back to what, what I said in opening in terms of situating my own academic interests, I'm very, very interested in the way that um, the discourse of prophetic social critique from the Bible is used in contemporary justice work um, in religious in religious settings. Uh, I don't want to give the false impression that I'm opposed to that, but it is striking that nowadays people are very eager to present their work and their voice as being prophetic, right? There, there are. I, I teach this stuff in my classes when we deal with um, contemporary manifestations of prophecy. There, are, as, as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, there are entire handbooks um, of so-called prophetic preaching, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's important to remember that for the most part, in the Hebrew Bible, nobody wanted to be a prophet. They ran screaming <laughs> in the other direction, mm-hmm. right? Whereas nowadays, everybody wants to be a prophet. And I see Isaiah 6 as a really important um, rebuke to that prophetic eagerness that we see today. That actually, like, being a prophet is not something you should want because you don't always know what exactly God is up to. You don't know what you're signing up for. um, And you don't know exactly what role your message is actually intended to play. Now, I'm not, again, I really want to be very careful in emphasizing, I'm not trying to say that people should not use the prophetic text as inspiration for justice work. I'm very committed to that project. But I do think that it is an important corrective to a sense that the accepting the mantle of prophecy is like a straightforward thing. And this text really complicates that because here you have a prophet stepping forward um, and being, uh, being very excited about this prospect and it ends terribly for everybody involved. Uh-huh. Is this the right time to then kind of move toward preaching pitfalls since it sounds like we're already kind of edging toward what are some what are some not so useful or bad ways that this text could be used? Yeah. Yeah, what are what are some other sort of dangerous alleys that you, that preachers shouldn't go down? Well, the one that I was troubled by myself was remnant theology that's there and the holy seed is in its stump. Right? So So do you want to talk about verse 13? Like I mean there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Do you have some thoughts on that, Ethan? Rosie, I think you have the NRSV in, in front yeah. of you, I, I think, mm-hmm. right? Would you mind just for, for, for our listeners, like reading how they translate verse 13, and then I'll come back to the JPS because, because this is interesting. Mm. Right. So verse 13 in the NRSV reads, even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Great. Now listen carefully um, uh, to what the JPS does with it again. But while a tenth part yet remains in it, it shall repent. So in the NRSV, the Hebrew word shuv, shuv means to turn, to turn back, and it can be used adverbially to mean again. Mm -hmm. So that's how the NRSV reads it, that this is going to be, it's like if you're pulling up weeds and then you notice you thought you got the whole thing, but there's a little bit of the root left. (laughs) You go back and you and you and you pull it out because you know if you leave that little root, the whole thing's going to come back anyway. 
like with, that's the metaphor here, but with fire instead of with pull it with uprooting. Mm -hmm. But it's basically God is saying, I'm going to destroy the whole thing. And if it turns out that even a 10th, which is like a biblical way of saying a teeny, teeny bit um, is left, that fire is going to come back again until the whole thing is destroyed, right? The JPS translation takes the Hebrew word shuv in the more abstract conceptual meaning, uh, which is to uh, to repent, to turn back in the sense of turning back to proper conduct, right? Uh, in that rendering, this final oracle is actually one of hope amidst destruction, mm -hmm. that even though the vast majority of everything will be destroyed, there will be a small a small subset that will actually do the right thing. It will be uh, a, a, a survived remnant, right? Mm -hmm. What you have here basically is the imagery of the stump functioning in, to in two totally different ways. In the negative NRSV reading, the stump is a symbol of devastation and destruction, right? It's all yeah, that's left of this once proud mm -hmm. tree. Yeah. In the, in the JPS understanding, the stump is actually a symbol of hope. There's there still is a still stump something left. left. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, we know if you if you look, this is a this is something that really happens um, when trees fall down in nature. The stump actually becomes basically you know a, a, a place that becomes teeming with other kinds of other kinds of life. Stumps uh, are um, thriving ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So which of these? So which of these is right? Well, um, I follow a scholarly approach here, which would say actually they're both right. They they offer readings from different stages of the history of this text. And um, again, this is not, I don't want anyone uh, who's listening to think that, oh, this is the absolute 100% objective truth. This is, this is a debate in the literature. So this is my reading of the mm -hmm. history of this passage, but there are scholars who disagree. But I follow an approach that basically says that in the original context of Isaiah chapter 6, or what would eventually become what we call Isaiah 6, this was... As the NRSV read it, it was a straightforward oracle of destruction, with fit, which fits with what comes before it. It fits with the negative stuff that comes before it. And it did not have that final line, the reference to the stump as the holy seed, which is a very messy and um, uh, kind of iffy line if you look at the ancient manuscripts, mm. that the original version was like the NRSV minus that final line about the holy seed. Even if a tenth part remains in it, it will be burned again until all that's left is a stump. Boom, full stop, end of discussion. Destruction, the people is destroyed, wow. right? What I think and what some other scholars think is that in light of a repentance theology that developed um, in the post-exilic period, you know, following the return of the people from the Babylonian exile, a later editor went back and added in um, that final phrase, its stump is the holy seed or its stump shall be the holy seed and therefore implicitly reinterpreted the 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 hebrew word shuv from being an adverbial again to actually referring to repentance mm -hmm. right you know there might be uh, there might be some concerns um uh, ethical concerns from a preaching perspective about the so-called remnant theology in terms of what it means about othering people that you disagree with or implying that the people who are who are lost in catastrophes somehow deserved it, uh, or that only people who survive are worthy, or something like that, and, and and those are all valid concerns. But I I think that there is something that is really promising about if you if you buy my argument that this was originally a straightforward oracle of doom, 
that a later editor reimagined in line with the possibility of survival. I think if you sort of take that history, you know, don't take either reading of the verse um, alone, but take the history of the editing of the verse as kind of a message in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful affirmation of the possibility for going back to texts that might seem straightforwardly negative and condemnatory and like finding promise and, and, and potential in them. I love that. I, I Not only do I buy your argument, but even if not, one of the few things that I feel like I sort of get about prophetic literature in general is that even when you have very drastic messages of doom, the very fact that they're being reported at all is a glimmer of hope. You know, even even the message that says, you know, nothing's going to survive, everybody's going to be wiped out. It's it, there's there's no hope. So, you know, make a change and maybe something will happen. Like there's this sort of invitation of of change and of possibility. I think there's also just a connection to human life and experience. Um, and when we go through really bad things, sometimes we think that's just the end and you you know, like that's something's over. But it's Often in these stumps, in these places where you've indicated, there's, it just feels like there's no life. New life that you could not have imagined, you know, in this stump is comes out, you know. So there are points in my own life where I could reflect on things that I thought were ends that turned out to be different beginnings. Um, that might be a, a preaching angle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's an important practice of figuring out how to tell better stories, uh, better narratives about painful or negative or difficult moments in our past. And like, that's, I think that's a big part of, of growth. And yeah, I think it's incredibly inspiring the possibility that there might have been this scribe who managed to look at this incredibly, you know, grim <laughs> oracle and actually, actually find a way to reframe it as being at least a little bit to a certain measure. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, forget about the sort of large national context of this as like referring to this larger people or this covenantal context. I think even Rosie, as you're saying, on the level of individual life experience, right, that that can be a powerful lesson. Well, we've got a whole lot of great stuff here. That seems like a good spot for us to wrap up our conversation for now. Ethan, it has been such a pleasure to have you back on the podcast, and hopefully we can do a three-peat of this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to both of you. All right, friends, that brings us to the end of another episode of First Reading. Don't forget that you can subscribe and follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, or Facebook, or wherever you get your pod fix. You can also access all of our back episodes, get more info about our guests and hosts, and browse the nifty First Reading swag all over at firstreadingpodcast.com. Thank you to those of you who support our work with donations. If you'd like to make a one-time or recurring monthly donation to help keep this podcast sustainable, that's also available on our website. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a helpful grant in support of our work, and to Blue Dot Sessions and Tim McNinch for our original music this week. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candlethal. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening.